Good morning again, everyone. It's good to be here with you in worship. I have a treat for you, and it's not that we're uh, talking about envy, uh, but it's that we're going to have a relatively short sermon uh, because we had the graduation ceremony. I had to cut down on what I, the length I normally go. So stay awake, pay attention, or you might miss it. It's going to go fast. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started talking about envy. Father, we pray again that you would help us. As we open ourselves up to your word, would you let it read us as much as we read it? Let us see places in our hearts that we have given over to other gods, other lords and masters, and let us see how you offer yourself as a a generous, a kind, a merciful, a forgiving lord and master. Wherever we're coming from this morning, whether we're surprised to find ourselves in church this morning, whether we have been dragged here by a friend, or whether this is the only place we can imagine being on a Sunday morning. I pray that throughout this worship service and now as we uh, engage in this sermon, that you would let us meet you, that you would embrace us, that you would draw us out of our self-loves, out of our, all the ways that we serve ourselves, out of our self-importance, and let us see Jesus. Let us be forgiven. We need your grace. We pray In Jesus' name, amen. Anyone a a fan of Westerns, Western movies, anyone? Okay, two or three. (laughs) Well, generally it's the older ones that are the best, right? Stagecoach, The Searchers, Red River. These are ones that I watched as I grew up with my dad, and I still love them to this day. But there's some new ones that are pretty good too. And one of the ones I like uh, was Tombstone back in the early 90s. And Wyatt Earp, in this version, is played by Kurt Russell. And Doc Holliday is played by uh, Val Kilmer. And Ringo is the the villain, the gunslinger villain. And so uh, Wyatt asks Doc, what makes a man like Ringo do the things he does? And Doc Holliday answers, a man like Ringo has got a great empty hole running right through the middle of him. He can never kill enough or steal enough or inflict enough pain to fill it. And Wyatt asked him, well, what, what does he want? And Doc answers, revenge. For what? For being born. Ringo lacked the normal social restraints that you and I have when we get angry, when we covet, when we envy something. He just went out and took it. And if there's someone that stood in his way, he shot him. But Doc sees something very important and very profound. And he says that it's never, ever enough. We've been looking during Lent at the the seven deadly sins and investigating this inveterate unhappiness that lies at the center of who we are oftentimes that leads us to treat our fellow humans and even ourselves in in very terrible ways. We've been trying to open ourselves up to this question of whether we're angry, whether we're greedy, whether we're lustful people, and what that tells us about ourselves. And now we come to envy. And the thing about envy is that there's very little payoff to envy. At least with gluttony, you get to eat a whole lot and you get to enjoy rich foods. There's a payoff. But envy just drives us more and more downward and it tears us apart from the inside out. It makes us more and more hungry. Well, where does this come from? Let's look first of all briefly at the root, the root of envy. And envy is one of those things that you can just 
point at children playing together and prove that it exists. It proves that the Bible is right about this and its diagnosis because kids are almost born into this ability to squabble, to wrestle, to fight over things. And this sense of justice and fairness that is intrinsically biased towards themselves. They almost come out of the womb with this. We come out of the womb with this. A brother or sister takes a toy, and it's like their whole world is coming to an end. And the conflicts that ensue after this doll or toy or crayon or something gets taken seems completely disproportionate to the crime. And one of our roles as adults and as parents is we enter in and we try to give perspective. We try to explain why their squabbling, their warfare is disproportionate, and we try to tone it down a little bit, that it's silly to fight over a doll or crayon. It's silly to to hit someone because they took your toy. But in the big picture, are our arguments or our quarrels or our squabbles all that much different? The things that we covet, the things that we envy become bigger. They become more expensive. They become more complex. But they still set us in opposition to, some, to other people. And sometimes they send us into open conflict. And that's why James is saying here is that envy is not a private sin. That we can try to hide it, but it affects, it affects those around us. It affects our community. It affects our family. It affects our church. So what causes these conflicts? What's the root? Verse 1, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you. Now there's something reassuring here that James is telling us because we see that quarrels and conflicts are part of our everyday experience. And in reality, if conflicts and quarrels aren't happening inside of a community, inside of a marriage, then you realize that you're not actually invested in that marriage. If there's no level of having to resolve conflict, then it shows that it's not a real community. It's not a real relationship. And so there's something uh, significantly reassuring about that. In any real community, there will be conflicts to work through, especially when we're in communities that are made up of people not of our choosing, such as the church. You don't get to choose who comes in the door, who sits next to you, who's in your community group. And so therefore, you have to wrestle. You have to struggle. You have to look inside and see my desires and what I want are creating conflicts with this other person. We have to investigate that and dig down deep to see what those are. Now, James ties them to these desires that battle within you, that that's the cause of conflicts. In other words, before these open conflicts and disagreements happen with other persons, there's this deeper conflict, this prior war, this civil war that rages within us. And the word that James uses here is the word that we get our English word hedonism from. It's pleasure-seeking, but in this case, it's pleasure-seeking, which says, don't make any demands over me. It's pleasure-seeking, which says, my demands and my needs are more important than yours. Don't require me to change. And each of us is this walking civil war, that we have these desires going on within our hearts that do battle with one another. On one hand, there's this envy that we want somewhat, something that someone else has. There's this self-projection, this self-importance that puts ourselves over and above other people, the self-gratification impulse. But on the other hand, we have a conscience. 
And we want to be seen as good people. We want to be seen as altruistic. And if we're Christians, we have this spirit that's at work within us that's doing battle with that. And so there's this civil war going on that James is talking about. And that's what erupts into conflict and warfare. A hedonist, in this sense, evaluates everything by how it affects them and evaluates other people based upon how they serve or do not serve their interests. I may have shared this before, but brilliant cartoon a few years back, non sequitur, uh, and it was titled The Victory of Egocentricity. And it's a guy who's facing the firing squad. He's got five rifles that are trained on him. He's about to die. And the little word bubble above says, okay, so we're agreed. It's all about me. (laughs) The victory of egocentricity. These desires wrestle against our desire to do what we believe to be true and good. They wrestle against our desires to be able to love another person. And loving someone always involves giving up our right to self-gratification. But it's far too often, and if you're in the church for very long at all, if you're in a family for very long at all, that our selfish desires win the civil war inside of us. And this internal conflict that we have gets externalized, and it interrupts our relationships, and it interrupts intimacy. It can destroy a community. It can turn a church from being outwardly focused and interested in doing what God wants them to do to fighting and squabbling about insignificant things. Because everyone thinks they know what's right for the church. They know what should be happening. And we long for that. We envy other people getting what they want. The root, James says, is these internal desires, this civil war that's happening. And then what are the the results? We've sort of talked about this already, but you covet, verse 2, and cannot obtain. And so you fight and quarrel. In other words, it's because we know that we're blocked from getting what we want that we fight and we quarrel. And the word for covet here is what's normally translated envy. And the interesting thing that we need to see here is that envy has sights not only on an object, but on the person that possesses that object. That etymologically, our word for envy comes from invidia, the Latin term invidia, which means to look maliciously upon or to eye with evil intent. And this is where we see this corrosive, destructive power of envy. Because it's not just wanting something that you don't have, but it's wanting the other person not to have it. It's not just about the object, but it becomes intertwined with this ill thinking towards another person. And so what starts out as a desire to put oneself first, it starts out as a hedonistic self-gratification desire, it leads to us wanting to, another person to experience loss. And what envy does is it operates in this zero-sum world. And it believes that uh, being depends upon having. And so having less is being less. Having less things, having less stuff, means that we're less worthy, that we're less important, that we're less of a person. And so if we live in this closed system that envy tells us to live in, having more means someone then having less. And this logic moves us towards a competitive spirit for scarce resources. 
if there's only so much to go around, then we need to grab it. We need to take hold of it. We need to make sure that someone else doesn't have it. And envy then leads us to see others as rivals. And so someone else's good then becomes a negative reflection upon me. And we resent other people's gain, other people's possession of what we don't have. Now that sounds terrible, doesn't it? It sounds awful. And maybe we're thinking, well, I don't really do that. Sure, I I want some other things. Sure, I see this nice thing that another person has, and I, I sort of am drawn to that. But that other level of wanting to despoil them of it, I don't really do that. Well, what about an example? Let's try to make this practical. Do you ever hold a grudge towards someone who you feel has offended you? Do you ever harbor bitterness to someone who has hurt you in some way or wronged you in some way? Do you ever have a conflict and then refuse to forgive that person and hold that debt over them? What are we doing? Well, in conflict, we feel that we've been hurt. We feel that we've been wronged. We've been transgressed in some way. And we refuse to forgive that person because we want them to feel what we're feeling. We want them to experience this hurt, this shame, this pain that they've caused us to feel. Isn't that exactly what we're talking about? Have you ever done that? That second level of divinity, the second qualification, is certainly true of all of us in this room. We want other people to experience the same loss we have, and we believe, then, we're entitled to their pain. Great story or illustration of this was in Iowa in the 1980s. And there were two women who had grown up together uh, from grade school. And from day one, they were bitter rivals. And they fought over everything. They fought over their toys, and they fought over boys, and then they fought in competitions. And once they got older in high school, one of them won a big competition in Iowa called Miss Harvest Queen. And then the other one won the other big competition, which was Miss Homecoming Queen. But You see, their primary competition began to be centered not on the winning of these beauty pageants, but on a particular strapping young man. And they forced him to choose. Which one of us? You can't have both of us. And so he did. He chose Miss Homecoming. And after a while, they announced an engagement, and Miss Harvest Queen was enraged. She was distressed because she wasn't used to losing to this person. And of all people to win, it can't be her. It wasn't just the losing, but it was losing to Miss Homecoming. Her hated rival was winning and very happy. And so what did she do? She strangled her with a leather belt and killed her. It's envy at work. Envy. Even if it doesn't lead us to murder, it can sever relationships. It can destroy our community. And Proverbs 14 says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Not only does it sever relationships and destroy community, but if unchecked, it will eat us alive from the inside out. So what do we do? We talked about the root and the results, but is there a remedy to be had to this envy? And It's found in a strange place. When we first read this verse, it doesn't seem to offer a remedy. You adulterous people, 
Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, what James is talking about here is not living in a protective insular community. He's not saying you should withdraw from your worldly affairs, withdraw from the economic, social systems of the world because they're dangerous. Did you hear Jesus talking about it's not what goes into the body that makes someone defiled, it's what comes out. Of course, we have to be protective, we have to be wise about our environment and the things that we put in front of our eyes and so forth. But he's not asking, the solution is not to withdraw from the outside community. The solution is not to have a lack of appreciation against secular goods and secular art and so forth. It's not certainly to make sure you don't have any non-Christian friends because they will defile you. It's not that at all. It's aligning one's life with something other than God. And to be friends in the ancient world meant that you shared something in common. To be friends meant that you have the same mind, the same outlook, the same perspective on reality. And so if you're friends with the idea that the point of life is acquiring stuff, it's consuming, that being depends on having, then of course we're going to envy the people that have those things when we don't have them. That's what being friends with the world means. It means that we've aligned ourselves with a way of seeing reality, with the philosophy that stands at enmity with what God wants for us and what he's doing in the world. And what we're doing when we envy, what we're doing in that situation, is that we're setting ourselves up to be an enemy against what God wants for us. The good gifts that he wants to bestow upon us, we're setting ourselves in opposition to those things because we can't appreciate them. If we want all of these other things, if our life, our meaning, our self-worth is built upon acquiring and having, then of course we're going to underappreciate those things that God actually gives us. Our friendship with that means that we cannot take as good those things that God gives us. They don't measure up. But if our orienting mission is li- in life is to serve God and his purposes, it puts those things that we don't have in an entirely different frame of reference. Think with me about the church. We at InTown don't look down the street and say, well, that church has this beautiful building and we're still renting, so they must be better and we want that. They have so many more people coming. Their budget is overflowing. They have so many more staff. Look what they're able to do. That's envy and that's coveting. And the right thing is to say, God has gifted us with what we have. That God has given us that which we need to carry out the mission that he has entrusted us with. That only in town can do. That we're not called to emulate other churches because they have bigger staffs, better buildings, whatever. Better preachers. I hope not. (laughs) We're called to take and appreciate what God has given us and to use that and to be thankful for that, not to envy what other churches have. And so take that practical example that makes perfect sense and think about it for your own life. If you've been called to be a child of God, to bring his healing presence into your family, into your workplace, into your neighborhood. If that's your orienting vision for life, then 
you have the things that you need because God cares about that mission so much more. And you can begin to appreciate those things and not say, wow, if I had that car, then I could be effective. No, you see, that's about you. That's not about mission. That's not about being a child of God. That's not about serving. And so there's a subtle shift that takes place. Our frame of reference changes, and therefore we value things differently. We trust that what he has given us is adequate. And when it's lost or when we don't have what we internally want, it doesn't become a personal tragedy. And we begin to pray for things that, God, would you allow me to acquire that so that I can dispense it to others, so that I can be a resource to my church, so that I can share with those in need. And as we come to the table, what we see is that life isn't a zero-sum game. What we see in the bread and the wine is that we can't plumb the depths of God's goodness towards us. What James says is he gives us more grace, that he is jealous for the spirit that lies within us, that he wants our love, that he wants our hearts to be oriented towards him. But even when they're not, he gives us more grace, that we can't plumb the depths of his grace. Instead of sulking, instead of getting even, instead of making us work off a debt, he gives us more grace. And we see at this table the ultimate example of conflict resolution. The gospel says that while we are sinners, guilty of high treason against God himself, he gives us more grace. He gives us his son. And if we measure our lives by what we have, it will never be enough. There will always be someone with more, and we'll become petty, destructive people. And even if we carefully hide our, in, our envy, it will eat us and rot us, as the Proverbs say, from the inside out. And what Scripture invites us to, what this table invites us to, is to measure ourselves by a completely different standard. And what is that standard The Apostle John said, this is how God showed his love among us, that he sent his one and only son so that we might live through him. The more that we align our perspective, our lives by this one central fact, the more we realize that God loved me and gave himself for me and live inside of a community that reinforces that, the more that that spirit begins to dwell within us, it can begin to undermine our envy. It it can begin to undermine our covetousness. When we come to see that no matter what, we're accepted by God, that our significance, that we have significance before God that isn't defined by what we have or what others have, then I no longer have to strive with others for significance. I no longer have to envy that they have something that I don't have because my identity is not based upon that. My happiness is not based upon acquiring that or seeing them despoiled of it. You see, the one person who could justly require everything of us instead chooses to give us everything. And when we realize that, then we can begin to move beyond wrestling with others for things and begin to give. We can grant forgiveness and reconciliation. We can be peacemakers. 
instead of destroying others, we can build up. We can lift up other people and begin to make them beautiful instead of destroying them by envy. Just as Jesus does in this table on our behalf. So let's come and participate in this meal. Let me pray, we'll confess our faith, and then let's come to the table. Jesus, we pray that you would change us where it matters. You would change us not just in our veneer, not just in how we posture ourselves to others, but you would change us from having to depend upon that, having to posture, having to take comfort in our outward veneer of prosperity, and that you would change us internally, make us into men and women, make us into children, make us into a church that doesn't envy what others have, but wants to give unto others because of what we have received in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.